So, like almost everybody, I have believed and often still believe that I will be happy when something happens. When I was little, I remember thinking, I will be happy if I get this toy. If I got that toy, I would always and forever be happy. I remember thinking, I will be happy when I don't have to go to bed at the same time as my stupid little sister. When I get to stay up later, I will be happy. I remember being four years old, being excited. Steve Darby and I were excited. We were going to go to kindergarten in just a couple days. We were cool. We were going to go to kindergarten. I would be happy. I would go to school like cool kids. And then Terry Van Updorp and Jerry Stauffer, who were going to be first graders informed Steve and I that we were, we were just runs. We were going to half-day school. We didn't get to carry a lunch pail. The cool kids got to take their lunch, and he showed us our lunch pail. And I remember being crushed, thinking, happiness is not until you get to first grade. Right? Now, that's comical, and you look at a four-year-old, but how much of our life is spent thinking just that way? So, of course, when I got into first grade, I discovered, why was I looking forward to going to school all day? I didn't want to go to school all day, and lunch pails were stupid. You had to carry them. You had to remember them. And and then I thought, I'll be cool. I'll be happy when I'm a fifth grader or a sixth grader. And then, of course, you go, no, the cool kids are at the junior high. And then when you're in junior high, you go, no, it's really all about high school. And then I remember thinking, I'll be happy if only I'm taller than at least one girl in the class. I'll be happy if I make the team. No, wait, I've got I've to actually make varsity. No, I've got to actually start. No, I've got to actually be good. You know, it just kept being elusive. I'll be happy when this happens. I'll be happy if I could get elected to this office. I'll be happy if I could win this. And it just keeps going. Now, occasionally there are moments when you realize how stupid this is. I mean, I had a couple... Very, very powerful, indelible moments. I remember in college talking with my roommate and saying, so basically, we're asking these girls out, but as soon as they say yes, we think there's something wrong with them. Well, why would they go out with me? Right? Or remember, um, I remember being... Uh, moving into being a consultant. So for, a, for after seminary, I was a college pastor for about 10 years, and college pastors have no money, no money. And I remember saying to Sherry and sort of complaining, you know what, all I want is the ability to buy a cup of coffee. Like, I just want to be able to buy a cup of coffee. So this is when Starbucks was just a Seattle outfit. It wasn't a national thing. And I just want to be able to go to Starbucks and buy a cup of coffee, but it's $1.47, and that's sort of not part of the budget every day. And I just want enough money to buy a cup of, co- of coffee. So now I transition out of being a college pastor. I'm a management consultant. I'm making multiple times money. Now we've got money. I remember going to a restaurant. Literally, I'm sitting at a restaurant. I open the menu and I go, you know what? I don't have to look at prices. I can get whatever I want. I do not have to worry about the price. I can get whatever I want. And the immediate next thought was, probably better watch my cholesterol. <laughs> right? And I remember thinking, Seriously, I don't get one time to just order whatever I want on the menu and not worry about it? Because now that I've got the money, I've got to worry about other things. And it was like, there's always this sense that when this happens, I will be happy. 
So let me just note um, that, that this is a big topic in life. For starters, I want, I want you to realize a point that I'll come back to a couple times. Whoever you are today, somebody somewhere thinks they would be happy if only they were you. Like if only I could leave the house without anxiety and go to church. If only I could see. If only I could, whatever it is. There's almost somebody thinking, I would be happy if only I were you. And yet, you're thinking you wouldn't be happy until something else happens. This is a big topic. Uh, We see it discussed by philosophers. So there are whole schools of thought about what it means to be a person and how a person discovers joy. So you've got the hedonists who are all about how how do we be happy? We we just pursue pleasure, right? You eat whatever you want, you drink whatever you want, you sleep with whoever you want because you just pursue pleasure so you'll be happy. And then the hedonists discover that actually doesn't work. Like if you just pursue pleasure, then the pleasure doesn't deliver pleasure. You need more of those things. And if you eat whatever you want, you got health issues. And so, that, so then you get the Stoics who say, you know, the way forward is to just kill desire. Right? That's the only way you're going to be content, is to not want. And there's whole sort of religions that come around this idea. Uh, this, is, this is some of what informs some Buddhists, right? I've got to learn to say no to desire so that I can be content. And then you have psychologists coming around and studying uh, what, is the, what are the minimum requirements for happiness. And, and it turns out from just a sort of physiological perspective, how much food, water, shelter do you need at which some people are happy? It's very low. But but you discover that, that happiness is often sort of contingent with humans based on what they see the people around them having. <laughs> and, of course, we've got a burgeoning in the last 50 to 100 years, a burgeoning medical field that is looking at how chemically, what, what, what causes people to be depressed or stressed or anxious, and what kind, of, what kind of pharmacological solutions might there be that would bring me contentment? And really, there's sort of two sides to this. There's the whole, I just don't want to be in a negative zone. I don't want to be stressed. I don't want to be anxious. I don't want to be fearful. Like, what, what is required for me to just get to neutral? And then there's all this talk about, what would it look like for me to actually thrive? To actually be joyful? To flourish? This is a big topic. It's a big topic in the Bible. So there's a, there's a whole book that is written ostensibly just talking about this. The book of Ecclesiastes. Written by David's son, Solomon. And Solomon has access to just about everything you could ever imagine. He's got all the money. He's got wisdom. He's got power. He's got women. And he says, I set out to figure out what, what will it take for me to be happy. I'm going to deny myself nothing in order to be happy. What is required to be content? We see a lot of this discussed in the New Testament. We see Paul talking about coaching our thinking. We have the example of Christ under extreme stress, sort of staying calm. We've got Paul writing from a prison cell uh, to the Philippians saying, look, I have learned to be content 
in any and every circumstance, whether plenty or want. So it's a, it's a big topic there. It's a big topic in the Psalms, and we're in this study of the Psalms. Uh, it's a big topic in Psalm 62. So just by way of brief overview and reminder, the Psalms is this collection of books. Excuse me, it's, it's, a, collect, it's a book amidst the Bible. It's a collection of 150 chapters. It's a big book. Most of the chapters are prayers. Many of them were written by David. These psalms were collected over about a thousand years. We think the earliest is probably written by Moses. Uh, and then the, the last psalms are written by people during the time of the exile. And it, it, all of this comes together and sort of bound together in a book, the, the Jewish official prayer and song book. And it comes together and is part of their literature about 300 years before Jesus shows up on the scene. Psalm 62 is uh, a psalm of David. Um, It is about contentment. It has some notoriety popularly because it has um, some colorful prose and and it hits on some themes that people find comforting. It has some some notoriety among scholars because of the structure of, of it that doesn't really translate into the English, but I'll highlight some things a little bit later on. And, um, and, and it's, a, it's a complicated psalm. There's a lot of different genres. But I just want us to walk through uh, Psalm 62 today, looking at, at some of the ideas that emerge because it is much to say about being at peace, being content. Verse 1. Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. So note the word soul. My soul finds rest. Biblically, it gets a little confusing when we're talking about soul, spirit, body, heart, will, mind, all these things that can be, there's overlap between them. What exactly is our soul? There's a sense in which it's everything that we are, but, but even more than that, it's sort of the epicenter of who we are. It's command central. It's my heart. My heart. Who I am at the deepest level finds rest. Okay? This is not I get to sleep in or I take a nap. This is, this is it finds peace, finds calmness. And it's not just that. It's not just a lack of war. The Hebrews, uh, the Jews have this word shalom, which is not simply a lack of war, peace that way. It is well-being, thriving, flourishing. My soul finds rest. Uh, It finds rest in God. So um, there's a translation of this, my soul waits in silence. And uh, I, I like that, uh, this concept of waiting and, and sort of being patient is, and this idea of silence. I've talked a lot about silence in the last year and a half and sort of my growing understanding of just the need to sort of sit in silence and to carry a little quiet in my heart every day. And, and it's worth noting the word noise is uh, from the Latin word nausea, uh, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of noise out there. But, but it's probably more significant to note that what we're talking about here with silence is not a lack of external noise. 
It's not, this isn't about what we hear with our ears, right? It's, it's a quietness. So I love the, uh, the one translation of this is that uh, only in God does my soul stop chattering. <laughs> so do I stop talking to myself and saying, you need this, you need to do this, you need to worry about this, right? Only in God does my soul, does, does my, my heart stop being anxious and stop talking to me. Now, there's, there's more here, as I said. It's, it's, a, it's a rich, poetic passage, and so this, there's a bunch of personal pronouns here. You know, my, my God, my fortress, my refuge, my strength. There's, there, there's, there's a lot here to, to, to mind. But if I was going to translate this passage and capture the essence of what I think is going on here, David is, is talking to himself. This is a meditation. It's not a prayer. Like, like the first two psalms we did in this series, Psalm 1, Psalm 103, this is not a prayer. This is not David talking to God. This is David talking to himself. He is coaching himself. He is meditating uh, in his heart, and he's saying, okay, I've got to remind myself, only in God. And, and that's key, because that's sort of where this Hebrew structure doesn't translate. The, the word only in Hebrew, the two-letter word, A-K, ak, uh, and it, it sort of jumps out. It's a, it's a rare word. It only occurs half a dozen times, uh, excuse me, only occurs uh, a couple dozen times in the Psalms. It occurs six times here, and it's just sort of, it keeps jumping out structurally. Only in God is, is my heart going to be quiet. Am I going to have a sense of contentment? And he's saying, I have to keep reminding myself only in God am I going to find what I'm after. Only in God will I find peace and contentment. He's the only one who provides the prevailing sense of well-being that allows me to stand strong in the face of the problems of life. Verse 3. And this is a, this is a turn. He's been talking to himself. He's been meditating now. He seems to be talking to the bad guys that are chasing him. Um, so he says, how long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? The leaning wall and tottering fence, he's referring to himself. He's, he's been compromised. So we think, we can't be certain, but we think he writes this psalm when Absalom, his son, is staged a coup against him, and he is fleeing. So he's leaving Jerusalem. His son, his own son, is trying to kill him. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a bad time, and he's weakened and people, as he's fleeing Jerusalem, some people are taking pot shots at him. And he's like, really? <laughs> that's who you are? You're, you're picking on the guy that's, you know, that's, that's down and got all these problems going on. I'm a leaning wall, a tottering fence, and you are, you're coming after me. So he says to himself, surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but with their hearts they curse. So he's just sort of, he acknowledges that he's been in this lofty place, right? He's been king. He's David. He's a hero. He killed Goliath. You know, he's a big warrior. He's the king. He recognizes the lofty place. But at the same time, he, he realizes people are trying to kill him. So he's sort of trying to understand, okay, yeah, I, got, I got a lot going for me. I got a lot coming after me. And um, and he's recognizing, okay, I'm, I'm, I got bad guys that are coming after me. He's, he's not writing this about contentment from a place of peace. Right? He's, not, he's not on vacation sitting by the lake 
uh, you know, going, I should be content. He's in the midst of an ugly situation talking about contentment. Verse 5. Here he's talking to himself again, and that's sort of how meditation works, especially in a crisis. You've got to keep saying, okay, I've got to keep these these thoughts. have got to be the prevailing thoughts. Yes, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. I will not be shaken. So you might remember at the start of this series I said, in Hebrew poetry, you don't rhyme words, you rhyme ideas. So this is a repetition, verses 5 and 6 is a repetition of verses 1 and 2. So you repeat the idea, you tweak it ever so much. So he says, only in God does my soul find rest. That's verse 1. Now it's sort of, only in God do I have hope. It's, it's the same thing. He's, he's, he's not making a distinction between finding rest and having hope. That's not the point. He's repeating this idea. That's what Hebrew poetry does. And in verse 7, My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart, um, your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. And again, um, there's a sense in which this is uh, all about the word only. So a lot of us think, I am at peace when I am at peace with God and my job is going well. I'm at peace when I, I, I am at peace with God and my 401k is well stocked. I can be at peace when, and we, we're making these these caveats, and he's, the, the, the thrust here is this word only, only in God, right? In God only. This is all about my relationship with God. So verse um, going on, surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. Uh, if weighed on the balance, they are nothing. Together they are only a breath. Probably he's looking at his enemies and he's just saying, okay, my enemies whether lowborn or highborn, they're vapor compared to God. They, 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 don't, they don't tip the balance, right? I, I, I shouldn't be focusing on them. Not looking at my problems. My problems are nothing compared to God. Could be that he's looking around and just engaged in comparison generally, which is always a fatally flawed exercise. You can feel good or bad when you compare. It all depends upon who you compare to and what you're comparing about. It's just a, it's, it's not generally a healthy practice. And so he's maybe talking himself off that ledge. Verse 10, do not trust in, ex, uh, in exhortation or put vain hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not um, set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to God and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. And uh, you reward everyone according to what they have done. So, Two, two ideas here, um, just to pull this together before I, I want to focus on something else. But two ideas that I, I hope have emerged. One is, um, what we're after is contentment that is going to come only in God. So we often think, um, we often chase things, stuff. I want to I be a fifth grade, I want to be a first grader. I want to be able to take a lunch pill to school, okay. Or I want this promotion, or I'm chasing, you know, money, sex, and power, happiness, health, better health, better friends, whatever it is. We, we're, we're chasing a bunch of things thinking that that will 
will make us happy. What, what, what we want is to be happy. Most of the things that we're after, not, it's not exclusively true, but most of the things we're after are not ultimate things. They're a means to an end. So if I were to say to you, you know, you can have uh, a few million dollars in misery or not, not any of the money, but contentment, if you think about it, what you want is the contentment. Now, many people think, well, I, I've got to have the, the $2 million to be content. Well, you only think that if, until you have the $2 million. And then you go, well, it's actually, that wasn't it. What we're after is contentment. And what this, what this passage is saying is the contentment, the sense of well-being, the sense of peace, the sense of joy, right? The shalom of God is what I am after. And this comes only in a relationship with God. And this is a point that gets made over and over in the Bible. The book of Ecclesiastes, as I mentioned, Solomon, I'm going to deny myself nothing. He goes after wealth. He goes after wisdom. He goes after women. He, goes, he says, I denied myself nothing. And in the end, he said, <laughs> none of that worked. At the end, what I have learned is fear God and keep his commandments. And Paul will write to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and he'll say, Timothy, he's talking about money, and he'll say, Timothy, let me just go to the chase. Godliness with contentment is what you're after. You're not after money. And tell the people who think they're after money, no, no, no. What you're after is a good heart, good character, and contentment. That's great gain. So, um, The first idea emerging from this psalm is that only in God am I going to find what I'm after. The second takeaway from Psalm 62 should be that I'm going to have to talk myself into this position. (laughs) Because because if I just drift, then I'm going to drift into a different spot. And I'm going to believe that I will be happy when I get to take a lunch pill to school. I will be happy when I make the team. I will be happy when these things happen. Good, these are not bad things. But they're not the things that are actually going to make us happy. And today, I think we've got to be extra vigilant to this point. First of all, because there is now a, there is now a media culture that we live in that is just screaming at us incessantly from every angle, and almost all of it is is designed by the nature of the medium to get our attention, it's designed to be shocking. And so whether the, ang- the argument is from the left or the argument is from the right, whatever it is, politics, international events, it, I mean, most of the news that, that, that we're being told that is unsettling, <laughs> it's unsettling to listen to the news. There are times when I go, do I want to listen to the news? I don't think so. I'm not really in the spot to navigate the news right now. So we got this news media. We've also got a huge marketing empire out there. And I'm not, I'm not against marketing. I'm not against capitalism. But, but we need to recognize this is unique, what we're living in right now. The last 50 years, there, there are wicked smart people who wake up in the morning. Their goal is to figure out how to get you to be unhappy until you buy their stuff, thinking that that's when I'll be happy. And they're good. 
And so, so we got to fight this all the time of people saying, you know, you need this. And, I, and you, you watch it and you go, well, I need that. I'd be happy if I had that. What is that? How does that work? What does it even do? But I need it, right? Because they're good at persuading us of this. And so we get unsettled. I, we get discontent. And so, so what we're being coached in here is I, I have got to I have got to talk to myself. I've got to meditate on God's word. I've got to focus my heart and remind myself, no, (laughs) I can be happy without that. I don't even know what it is. It didn't even exist two years ago. I can be happy without that. By the way, there are people who have a lot less of whatever it is that you want and are happy, right? So, I've got to remind myself of these truths. I've got to talk myself into this. David, in the midst of a crisis, is reminding himself, only in God am I going to have contentment. (laughs) It's not about more whatever. So that's the psalm. Two things that I want to to share with you that are sort of extras, and they, they emerged out of conversations this week. So one of them, it goes a little bit to the whole media stuff that's going on. Um, We'd be a lot happier if we decided to be happier. I always like to say something profound so you can just write that down. (laughs) Everybody's agitated. So uh, everybody's agitated because they feel attacked and they feel angry and they're mad at, you know, this party or that party. or Everybody's, everybody's mad and agitated. So the, 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 the more weighty classical work on this was written by Jonathan Edwards, who was uh, one of the great uh, Puritan divines, one of the great thinkers. Some would say the smartest person ever to live in the United States. He was a 1600s guy. He's a, he was a pastor in New England and part of the Great Awakening. Uh, he was a philosopher. He wrote lots of books. Jonathan Edwards wrote a, a classic called Charity and Its Virtues. And, and, he's, and one of the things, one of the chapters in there is about what to do when you're attacked. And basically he says, get over it. So you're attacked. Okay, you were expecting not to be attacked? Get over it. And he writes this as a guy who was a pastor, generally understood to be brilliant and thoughtful and hardworking, and he gets chased out of his, he's probably, arguably one of the most famous men ever to be a pastor in this country, and he gets fired from his job over a false accusation that he refuses to defend himself against. He just says, you know what, I'm I'm not going to worry about that. People are saying these bad things about me. I'm not going to worry about it. God is my defender. I am not going to get worked up over this. And so if, it, if something happens and I lose my job, okay. I'm still good. I'm still, I, I'm, God still loves me. I have been forgiven. I am going to live forever. This is not a big deal. I'm not going to get worked up over it. So he does get fired later, a few years later. Uh, the person that falsely accused him recants and said, "This I was just jealous. But he's moved on. He's now working as a missionary to the Indians. He does that for a few years, and then he becomes the president of Princeton College. And not long after that, he, he dies of um, smallpox, I think. But, but he says, look, just choose not to get mad. This is not that hard. And, and so this last week, I read a book 
So Jonathan Edwards is this weighty, thoughtful, classic work. I read a book by a, a Christian talk show disc jockey. And, and it's sort of the other end of the spectrum. And I don't know this guy, Brant Hansen, uh, and the book is called Unoffendable. And he just says, look, just stop. Just get over yourself. Just decide you're not going to be offended. And, and yes, life is broken and lots of bad things happen. Just get over it. And he talks about, he says, you know, everybody says, well, you know, but be angry, but there's righteous anger. You're not supposed to be angry, but there's righteous anger. He goes, stop it. He said, you got to get over, you got to get over your righteous anger. And by the way, you don't have righteous anger. You have unrighteous anger. So if, if you're mad, every time you get mad at something, you think it's righteous anger, right? It, it's only later that you don't feel like this is justifiable anger. And he said, even if it's justifiable, he says, the anger that we see that gets, that gets acknowledged in Scripture is anger when someone else is being mistreated. It's not anger over how you're being mistreated. So Jesus goes in to the temple and famously overturns. This is Jesus, by the way, so he is, he's in a little bit different category than you. And he's mad because the poor people are being taken advantage of. That's his anger. He's not angry when they're, when they're, when they're stoning him, when they're whipping him. He doesn't, he doesn't act out in that context. And so I, I found the book Unoffendable to be a, just a, a quick read and a very helpful book. And I want to say there's a whole lot of contentment that could come when you just decide, yeah, this is a broken world. I'm not expecting it not to be a broken world. And I'm going to choose not to be offended. So just full disclosure here, I announced this last week when I finished the book. I'm going to choose not to be offended. It worked for about two hours, at which point I was offended. And then it was about a half hour later when I realized that would probably be the kind of thing that I should choose not to be offended over. So that's one point. The second thing that I'll I'll make is... um, that we need hope in order to be content. So I was talking with a, th- a therapist this week, and I, I said to, to her, I said, so as I understand it, what I read is that there's a lot more anxiety, a lot more stress, a lot more depression today than in the past. Is that true? She says, yeah, I, I think that's true. And I said, and, and This is true sort of in spite of the circumstances. And I know that there's lots of of things that are going wrong. And I know that the the booming economy is not, you know, not everybody is enjoying the upside of that. And I know that there's lots of injustice. I know all those things are true. But but as a rule, life expectancy continues to go up and, and, uh, and creature comforts to continue to go up. And there's a lot of reasons to say medical care is better than ever. And there's a lot of things that sort of from 30,000 feet you go, yeah, things are better than they have been. And yet, there's a whole lot more stress and depression and anxiety. She goes, yes, that's true. And I said, I hear that this is particularly a problem among Young people, young people today seem to be less resilient and less able to cope with the, the challenges of, of life. And she says, yes, that's somewhat true. I said, well, is this because, as I have heard, uh, we protected them too much? 
everybody gets a trophy, right? Everybody's a winner. You know, we're, we're not going to, we're going to have lawnmower parents, and, or, or they were helicopter parents initially that would swoop in at a moment's notice. Then I heard they're now lawnmower or bulldozer parents that show up and just completely clear the path. And so they're trying to take away every problem that people would have. I said, is that what's happened? And she says, I think that's part of it because you do, in fact, learn how to get knocked down and get back up and life hasn't ended. And she goes, yes, I think that's probably some mistakes were made there. And she goes, it's complicated. You don't want little kids to, you know, to suffer unjustly and all of that. But yeah, it's probably true. And I said, uh, so what do you think it is? So what, what, are, you, what are you saying? She says, well, because I'm not a fan of social media. I think social media creates anxiety among people in ways because it's a sort of a false medium and it's nonstop and because there's something there. But my take would be that we're increasingly living in a secular culture. So as a rule, secularism is dying out because because full-blown secular people tend not to have children. (laughs) which is a problem if you want to multiply your movement. Uh, It's religious people that tend to have kids. And so Europe is turning religious again. Western Europe is turning religious again. Mostly Islam, not Christianity, but, but secularism sort of doesn't work. It doesn't grow. But we got a lot of people who are buying into secularism, and, and I think the way this gets articulated a lot today is I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious, so I said means, you know, I'm deep but not crazy. Right? I think that's what, uh, what most people are trying to say. I'm spiritual but not religious. I'm not going to be like those people. But, but when I push on people that say I'm spiritual but not religious, it's a very shallow, often, uh, set of beliefs that are largely self-authenticating and don't call people forward and don't really have a prevailing sense of God who's in control. And the hope that comes by saying, there is a God, (laughs) and he's in control, and I am forgiven, and I am loved, and this works out. And this is what Jesus offers. He will say in the New Testament, I mean, Psalm 62, "Only only in God does my soul find rest. And then Jesus will show up and say, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest, restoration. We find what we're after, not by getting what we're after. We find this in a relationship with God. Let me pray. Father, we uh, confess that we can quickly get back on this uh, treadmill of thinking that I'll be happy when this happens or when this happens, even though we know from life that, uh, that nothing other than you ultimately satisfies. Nothing is big enough. Nothing is grand enough, majestic enough, holy enough, awesome enough, other than you. Everything else is going to fall short. So I pray, uh, knowing that there are people here suffering stress and anxiety and, and challenges and disruptions. And Father, we pray for contentment. Uh, And we pray for contentment in you and that we can understand that in you and in you alone do we find the kind of shalom that we are looking for. Help us move to that end. Help us to guide and direct and hold our thoughts captive to these big prevailing truths. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.